everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flops Podcast. I'm your host, Angelique Gay. I'm a mom and a writer who recently went through a major life transition. Every week, I invite other creatives and change makers onto the show to talk about their own transition, a time in their life when they felt completely untethered and lost, which, as it turns out, is completely normal and can even be life affirming. Today, I am beyond thrilled to welcome Amy K. Stanton. Amy owns a Venice, California based PR agency that promotes female athletes. She co-authored the book, The Feminine Revolution. She is a TEDx speaker, and she was the first ever chief marketing officer for Martha Stewart Living Omni Media. Amy has traveled the world, and she is by far the coolest, most laid-back powerhouse I've ever met. Enjoy. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm so, <laughs> so thrilled to be chatting with you. It's, oh, it's such an honor. Thank you. First of all, I'm excited to talk to you too. I have wanted to speak to you. First of all, like I said in my email, you just have this amazing vibe, this vitality. You're just, you're a natural attractor. And so I was just very curious about chatting with you. And when Katie said that you wrote The Feminine Revolution, that really, really drove my curiosity. And then as I was researching you, I was really blown away with your career, everything that you've done and your natural storytelling and... I just wanted to let you know that during the pandemic, I really felt very lost. I realized I was going through a transition, which is saying goodbye to something and then feeling this period of being really lost and then starting a new beginning. And so that's why I started this podcast. And so I wanted to give you a chance to maybe share a big transition story that you've been through and then ask you how you navigated all of that and feelings you experienced and then how you found your way through and started a new beginning. Yes. I mean, it's funny when you say that, I think, first of all, transitions are constant and it's interesting because there's a book all about transitions that called life is in the transitions that came out recently. And I spoke to the author prior to when it launched and he talked about the fact that there are actually cycles around transitions. I think it's every seven years, there's a major transition. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but. um, Oh, it's true because our cells replace themselves every seven years in the body. Yeah. It's interesting. And then, and then there were specific times in life where these major transitions happen. And it was just very interesting conversation, but I think about so many different things when you ask that question. And, and there was one phase that I would say was probably the biggest transition, which was when I split up with this guy that I thought I was going to marry, started my own business after the, for the first time being out of quote unquote corporate America and really just started rethinking life. And soon after that, I ended up moving back to Los Angeles from New York. I'm from LA originally. And I feel like I was ready to just rip the bandaid off and do everything at once because I was ready for change and I was ready. And, and there were so many reasons, you know, I think sometimes we feel like we're a victim of transition and, mm. and a lot of it is around perspective and actually kind of taking hold of it and going, wait, I've made choices that have resulted in this and I'm going to continue to make choices as I move through this transition and regaining a feeling of control around it. And I think obviously you look back and you remember how unstable things felt potentially or how uncomfortable they were or how out of your body you felt or whatever the things are. But, but then you realize, you know, that those were moments of true resilience and where you were actually your strongest, whether you realized it or not. You know, I even think about that in the context of employees that work for me and their various phases of development. And, and I, I see this in them now, mainly because I saw it in myself, but that sort of climbing phase of, striving and learning and you feel so out of whack and out of your element and you have no idea what you're doing and then you master that and you've plateaued and then you're bored and you're you're feeling unmotivated because you don't feel like you know it all too well and you've been doing it for too long and then 
suddenly there's a new challenge of some sort and you go back into that beginner's mind and in learning phase where you feel completely inept again and then you plateau again and this is just these are all various phases and stages and transitions and it's the beauty of life. So how do you regain control? Because it's so true that you can end up feeling like a victim because you feel so lost and vulnerable. So how did you, when you were in that moment of moving from New York to LA and leaving, I'm assuming that's when you were at Martha Stewart and then left that and moved on to starting your own company. How did you make that decision to leave corporate America and start your own company? Because where I'm going with this is, are you a natural entrepreneur? Were you always that way? Or mm. is it just that you felt like you had to create your own table? I think it's a combination of both. To answer your first question around how do you regain control? I mean, first of all, I think quote unquote transitions begin long before you're aware of them. So when you think about this idea of like when I was moving back to LA as one example, I mean, I, and even starting the business, I had been planning to start my own business from when I was a child. I started these little barrette businesses and I was always coming up with things and selling things. And that's because I was surrounded by entrepreneurs. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. My uncle's an entrepreneur. I wouldn't say growing up in an entrepreneurial family, you feel like it's easy, but you certainly know it's doable. Um, and in some ways, maybe seeing that it's not easy is a good thing because then you're not caught by surprise by the fact that it's often extremely torturous. <laughs> and I think <laughs> people don't realize the extent of that because they think of entrepreneurship as being about freedom and suddenly you can do it your way and it's all going to be how you want it. And that is so far from the truth. Um, there are elements of that that are true, but I'll, I can come back to that. But, but in terms of just making this leap, I mean, I had been thinking about it for a while. I was thinking of starting my own business from this young age and had no idea what it would be. And then I did have this epiphany around the need for more positive female role models right after I was working on the Olympic bid and working with these incredible female athletes. I was working with male and female athletes for what it's worth, but I could see that we needed more women to look up to in the world. And these Olympians were the epitome of greatness in so many ways, not just striving to be the best at something in the world. But there were also oftentimes nice people with humility, wanted to make a positive impact in the world, family-oriented, good students, all of this wrapped up into this incredible package of someone who is pursuing excellence day in and day out. And it all comes down to this one moment in time during the Olympics where either they, they make their dream come true or they give it their all and it's just not enough. And... That is just so inspiring to me. And and then once you know their stories and the stuff that they've overcome to get there and their families and the rest of it, you're it's just so mind-boggling. So I felt like those stories needed to be told. And I definitely felt like as much as I was never intending to be a sports agent, I did build brands for a living. And that's what they really needed. So coming out of Martha Stewart and, and Martha is the ultimate entrepreneur and mm -hmm. in so many ways, such an inspiration for me, because I feel like she still doesn't even get credit for the fact that basically every single company is Omnimedia now. And she, not only did she coin that term, but she was the first person to build a major company that functioned where there are all these different divisions supporting and feeding and promoting each other in a way that creates this whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. So yeah, she was, I mean, if there was ever someone to be around in a way that you go, okay, I have to start my business now. It was Martha. And, and it was scary because, and it's, it's interesting because I remember my grandfather, who is without question, one of the all time mentors for me and so much more. I mean, he was the patriarch of our family and he grew up in the South and really didn't come from much and then moved to Los Angeles, went to school here and built this business from scratch that was a perfect example of a business that nobody ever even knew existed, which so often those are the ones that do the best. <laughs> what was but his business? It was called the Burton Company and it was a... So you know that aisle in supermarkets that carry all the non-food related items? So it's basically candles and sewing notions and toys and 
hair accessories and it's just miscellaneous. I mean, now there might be more than one aisle, but at the time there wasn't anyone really helping supermarkets figure that aisle out. And it was extremely inconvenient for them because they had relationships with all the food companies, but this was this mishmash. So he became the middleman and he basically would bring in shelving and the rest of it with all of those products so that it simplified the grocer's lives. It's just crazy when you think about it. Because again, you don't walk around the supermarket thinking, oh, this is interesting. I wonder how they do this, you know, but that's so um, funny because my grandparents ran a grocery store. And you're so, kidding. No, it's so bizarre that you say that. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that bit of information about you, but oh, that's so you? interesting because and my grandmother cut hair in the back of the shop. So I grew up looking to them as entrepreneurs. And, you know, when I was little, I would sell, I would like write wishes on rocks because we were near the water. And then I would, I would sell that if I threw them in the water, your wish would come true. This wow. is when, when we were little, like I just always as well wanted to have my own business. I didn't know what it would be, but similar. That's I funny. love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think for some of us, it's just in our blood. And yes, being surrounded by people who are doing it makes you think it's normal. Whereas yeah. I, d I definitely know a lot of people who never would even contemplate starting their own thing, nor does it appeal to them at all. And I completely understand why. <laughs> so, but I think it was, it's just in us and I, mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that. And I do think actually being entrepreneurial makes us more comfortable with the uncertainties of the day-to-day. -day. I mean, it's just part of what you're signing up for, but in terms of transition as a concept, there's so much transition in the context of building your own business, running your own business every day. There's some Well, especially sort of now because things change so fast and you're yes. such a great example of someone who embraces things as they come up. Like, you know, you write articles, you not only run your company, you wrote the book on how to kind of run a matriarchal. We'll get more into it afterwards in terms of how you treat your employees and, and how you let them communicate. But then also the fact that you're, you know, known as clubhouse queen. So you're always, <laughs> you're always moving. And I just, I find it amazing. Like you really embody the quote unquote entrepreneurial spirit of embracing change constantly. It must Thank be you. exhausting, <laughs> but you know, it is, but I it think is. you're really driven because like you said, you get bored easily, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I appreciate a lot of stimulation. I'm also a right. great relaxer. I mean, if you, no one enjoys a beach vacation where you're literally just laying around doing nothing in a beautiful place more than I do. So I'm not, it's funny because I have both of those sides to me, but I definitely have, I am really driven and I'm not even entirely sure where all that came from, but it's in me. It's amazing. Thank what you. did you learn from Martha Stewart working with her for a year? Well, I would say there's so many things that were incredible about Martha, but, but at the top of the list is the power of curiosity. And one of the things that's so much fun about being around Martha, and I was fortunate enough to travel with her extensively and see her in all different kinds of circumstances. I went with her for the very first time that she ever went to a Costco. And we went to the original Costco in Washington. And watching her walk through Costco and the joy that she would find in picking up the various items and looking at where they came from and, and appreciating these things and just her, again, curiosity about it was so... It was such a good example of how we all can walk through life with eyes wider open. At the end of the day, think of Costco as I mean, it's the epitome of a good example because most of us do that as just a like, let's get this over with. You know, this is not something we want to spend a lot of time, quote unquote, enjoying. It's like we have to go get trash bags and toilet paper and maybe a new stereo or whatever it is but like we are not there for an experience and and it but we could be and that's how she is everywhere so if you're going through a flea market or if you're going through again Costco or any restaurant experience it's always she's seeing it through these child's eyes in a way that makes it so fun and it's such a great reminder um and, and it's not that she, I mean she's moving a million miles an hour it's not like she's wasting time it's not like she's you know, overdoing it. She's just literally experiencing the richness of what's right here in front of us. And so I, I love that. And then the other thing is 
you know, I think she gets a lot of heat for being tough. And we all know that there are these double standards and women can act a certain way. Men can act a certain way. And if it processed differently because they're a man or woman. And I think a lot about that and have obviously written a book about it. But I think with Martha, you know, it always, I, I certainly I saw her get upset about stuff, but more times than not, I felt like it was completely warranted. She expects greatness from people. She wants people to care. She has high standards. She's a perfectionist. She cares personally so deeply that she wants everyone around her to have these same high standards. And honestly, I, I respect that. So it, that too is a good reminder of like the importance of just sticking your guns with stuff, you know, and if there's a right way of doing something and you know what that is, you know, don't settle for less. And are there nicer ways to present it? Sure, probably. And that's all like, we all can kind of learn from that. But but yeah, I, I felt super inspired by her. And I definitely feel like she's a legend. <laughs> she's really a legend. What did you learn about storytelling from her? That's an interesting question. I think I ask because I read one of her books and I remember vividly. I mean, I read this book probably 20 years ago. And she spoke about the idea of selling pie and how you're never just selling mm -hmm. pie. There's a story behind it home, mm. the smell, the experience of what you're giving to other people. So that's why I asked that question. I love that. You know, I don't even think I'm conscious of having learned something about that from her. But I do think it's tied to and as you're saying that it's a total of course, it's tied, I think, to the curiosity and the way she experiences things because she just doesn't sort of take anything at face value in a great way. There's always a depth to it, you know, and before meeting Martha, and this is not an exaggeration, before I interviewed with her personally, I had never, well, with the company, because of course, before I met her, I had done all of these things, but I had never watched the television show. I had never read the magazine. I'd never bought any Martha Stewart products. I was totally and sort of outside observer. And there's so many people that are these mega Martha fans. And in a way, I think because I was objective, that was an advantage for me coming in with this sort of clarity about things. But I really started cooking as soon as I started working with her. And it's because of the fact that I enjoyed the process so much more because it wasn't this kind of functional, I have to like check this off the list and like create something that I can use as fuel it was there was a sort of beauty and romance to it and and an experience I mean even the way she, her recipes are built they're just everything has a depth to it and I just again I think I carried that forward in the way I live I love that why do you need to be the boss <laughs> First of all, I don't think I need to be the boss. I think I prefer having a perception of more control over my destiny. Mm. So in a corporate environment, uh, there are plenty of benefits. I, I could go on and on about them, frankly, because the, the further I am away from them, the more I'm aware of them. But the structure, the security, the consistency, the, the expense accounts, the on and on. <laughs> but I think running my own business, I get to choose who my employees are. I get to choose who I surround myself with. So employees are one example. My clients, you know, if things are not working with a client, I don't have to suffer through it. I can actually do something about it. I can, if, if I think the client's not treating my team well, I can do something about that. It ultimately comes down to my perceived risk and reward and, and how I want to live my life. And do I want to have a larger team of employees? Do I want to have a smaller team of employees? Do I want to have more clients? Do I want to keep growing? I mean, these are all choices I can make. And sometimes, of course, we don't choose the way things unfold in our company, but then we can choose how we address that. So I'd say there's so many challenges. I'm up for handling the challenges. So that part never scared me. I think what I felt I could do differently was, was how I would sort of create culture and, and shape the day to day for myself and those around me. And that's what I love about it. Have you always been this self-confident? Definitely not. <laughs> I mean, first of all, we're all confident in certain respects and not confident in other respects. I think, I mean, maybe we could find someone who's confident in all respects or totally not confident in any respects, but I think we're all, <laughs> we're all a balance. But I, 
I definitely feel confident in my work stuff because I've had enough proof of success and enough failures to learn from and enough clarity around kind of where I add value and all those things. I mean, it's just, that's just the nature of having worked for a hundred years. <laughs> so I think that's where the confidence comes from. Honestly, it's hard, hard, hard work. And it's, and I'm, I've just put a lot into it, you know? So I now I do feel generally like I know what I'm doing. And then there's some days, let me tell you, there are some days where I'm like, maybe I really have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm thankful for those days because those are the days I get to learn something new and see where my blind spots are. And, you know, I might not be thankful in the moment for them, but I generally over time see that those are critical moments. I mean, even in terms of what I was talking about before around the growth stages and then a plateau and growth stages and the plateau, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful right now at this very second because I, for the past couple of years, I've had a lot of personnel transition and it's been super challenging. And I, I knew we had a culture problem. I knew I was the only person that could do anything about it. Culture has always been really important to me. I am a deeply sensitive person, so I feel it in a different way, I think, than some might. And I felt like I was not making any progress. Like I couldn't figure out where the issue was and what we needed to do differently. And it was really taking away from the joy I was feeling in doing what I do because having a productive, happy, healthy team and with joy in the day to day is, is what makes it worth doing without that. I would say, please, no, put me out of my misery. And as of the, really, I'd say the past six months, there's been a massive, massive shift. And we have right at this very moment, the most incredible team. And I feel just unbelievable gratitude for them. And I literally wake up every day feeling that. And I tell them this daily because I just, I really, I see what a huge difference it makes. And I don't know how it, it all came together as it is at this moment, but I, it was not one thing. It was a series of really challenging moments and challenging times and seeing what I didn't want and seeing what wasn't working and having very tough conversations and letting people go and watching people go that I didn't want to go and I, or that I didn't think I wanted to go. But now in this moment, I know it's exactly as it should be. And I, I don't take it for granted because I know it won't feel like that forever, <laughs> but in the right. moment it does. That's amazing. Congratulations. Are you all back at the office now? Or are you still all working from home? We're not. I, I'm not really sure what to do on that front because I, I want to bring everyone back into the office when the time is right, when people feel excited to be back in the office. And we've had some gatherings, safe outdoor gatherings, and we've definitely, we spent a lot of time to get seeing each other's faces on Zoom. Um, but I don't, I don't know. And some of us are in the office at different points. I actually moved offices last April, which was that was a transition, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, and it was also one of those things where I could have easily just not done it because I could have put everything in storage and saved a bazillion dollars. But I'm so glad we have our office because I think, I mean, it's productive in that we do a lot of mailings and other things out of there that we need space for. But it also is just a reminder that we will all come back together. And then when we are all there, we're all so happy to be there. So I'm excited about that. So tell me about your book. The Feminine Revolution. I know you had kind of a lightning moment in terms of your idea for the book. Can you tell us about that moment when it came to you? Sure. I, again, great example of how transitions start long before we're aware of them. And I think for me, I mean, ideas, whatever these things are, they exist in us and then they develop over time. And in my case, I had been, I'd had this kind of hardcore career where I, I mean, my career was my focus and in many ways it still is, frankly, but I definitely, I worked in these environments where I felt like I really needed to toughen up. And I had all of these different mentors and bosses that, that showed me that in various ways. So a number of people in my early performance reviews and big advertising agencies in New York would say, Oh, can't be so sensitive. Can't take things personally. I mean, I'm a crier. Clearly we all know it's not ideal when you cry in the office, but we can talk more about that because I think it's a great thing. <laughs> but I, I definitely 
over the years started feeling like I was building this armor and I was tougher than I really wanted to be or even needed to be. And I wasn't entirely sure what to do about it because I felt like I had developed these mechanisms so that I could quote unquote thrive in a man's world. And then thought to myself at one point, is the reason that I haven't met Prince Charming is because I'm bringing tough, bossy Amy into my dating relationships. And I still haven't answered that question, to be honest with you, because I still haven't met Prince Charming. However, I will say that the process of acknowledging that and starting to think differently about it allowed me to bring a softness and gentleness and my sort of like more inherent traits and qualities forward because of this journey. So I started talking to a bunch of people about this idea of femininity. It was almost like I was struck by lightning because I realized everybody was talking about feminism and female empowerment and women's rights and equal rights and all this is super important, of course, but nobody was talking about this other F word of femininity. And I was curious why, because in, for me, femininity was such a positive thing. And But then even in my own existence, I could see that there were parts of femininity that I was holding back. So my sensitivity, my emotionality, the fact that I'm a crier, I felt like I needed to hide these or feel like I I couldn't bring them, bring my full self into the workplace in particular. And, you know, you start to program yourself to behave a certain way and it's hard to have a work persona and then a out of work persona. This is the, you know, you're a fluid human being that is operating, you know, basically there's such a blend between work and life these, these days anyways, it's hard to separate. So I realized in these various conversations with women and even men that that we're all holding parts of ourselves back inadvertently and and all we all have parts of ourselves that we think aren't welcome or that don't get the positive feedback or that maybe are holding us back in some way and so this was a process of a journey around unleashing those things and looking at them through a different lens and I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Catherine Connors, who ultimately ended up being my co-author because she was working on the rebranding of the Disney princess. She was an academic and taught women's studies. And so she had a totally different perspective on things, but a shared vision around the importance of creating space for people to show up in an authentic way and really reframing this idea of femininity. So after the first couple of years of my obsessing over the idea and, and bizarrely enough saying I'm going to write a book, which I still can't believe how weird that is because I had never even thought about writing a book. Some people always want to write a book. I had no desire to write a book, Um, but I just started telling people I was going to do it. And then finally, after I probably a year and a half after I knew Catherine, I was like, why don't we just do this together? Because I'm tired of just saying I'm going to do it. And then one thing led to another and voila, the book came to fruition. And the way the book is organized is focused on 21 different qualities which have historically been considered feminine and historically considered weak because feminine qualities have been considered weak and then turns each of those on their heads to show that they are in fact our superpowers so even qualities like sensitivity or crying openly these are things that we've maybe felt shame around or felt like we needed to hold back and this conversation allows us to see things differently and to feel more free about it and not to go over the top and be the most sensitive person all the time for the sake of it, but to go, okay, in the day to day, are there parts of me that I'm holding back? What if I start to play with it differently? What if I start to look at it through a different lens and allow some of these things to come forward? Maybe we would, if I felt differently about it, then others would be given the space to feel differently about them too. I'm someone who's very driven by intuition. So Mm. when you said part of what you want to do with your book is make intuition seen as something where I I believe your exact quote was not woohoo, but really allowing the space for intuition to be the way to make a decision and for that not to be seen as irresponsible. Mm. Yes. I, I love when you say that. So what are your superpowers out of all of those 21 traits and how do you use them? So, I mean, I really think a number of them resonate for me. What's cool about the process, first of all, I should have said this up front because it's really important to contextualize the conversation. We are all a balance of masculine and feminine, and that is a good thing. And the way each of us would define femininity would also be distinct. So the things that would align for you, like intuition 
I mean, in this case, it happens to be one that is resonates for me too. But there might be other things in there. Like one of my good friends read the book and the thing that made her, well, that sparked for her was the bemothering chapter. Because we basically, each of the chapters are titled in a way that encourages us to lean into this historically feminine slash weak quality. So, you know, never before has someone been told to be mothering. But she's like, you know what, my whole life I've been given a hard time for being so mothering and so nosy and wanting and caring about everybody's business. And after reading this, I really started thinking about it differently and realized that's what makes me great. This is why I have such strong bonds with people and people know they can count on me and on and on and on. And this, and I honestly, you know, it's really weird feeling when people are reading your book because you don't, I mean, they're going to generally tell you positive things to your face, but it doesn't land for everyone, nor can any book land for everyone. But what I loved about this process is that there were ideas in there that seemed to resonate for each person in a different way. And so for me personally, sensitivity is an easy one because I definitely, from a young age, I mean, my mom was telling me I was too sensitive and I, d- I didn't ever think the word sensitive could possibly be a good thing. And then the workplace stuff reinforced that. And I started feeling like I needed to hide that. And, and that creates a whole other set of problems. And now I see that my sensitivity is what allows me to be great at what I do. So I can walk into the office and sense that something's bothering one of my employees and I can actually do something about it. Or sitting in a client meeting, I can sense that someone's not saying exactly what they mean. And then I can do a follow up to figure out what's happening and solve the issue. Or ultimately, even in terms of just general day to day human interaction, my sensitivity allows me to be more connected with people I'm working with and beyond. I mean, obviously. So that's one that really resonates for me. The intuition one's really important too. I mean, I I'm glad you brought that up because I realize intuition is one that just doesn't generally get cultivated because we live in this world of hard facts where it's expected that everybody, especially in corporate America, you've got to bring your argument. You have to bring the proof points. Where's the research? You know, this is what we sit around talking about in meetings and all of that is valuable, but I get excited about a world where that is all fine and dandy and we have the research and the quantified backup but then we can also say the gut instinct is the tiebreaker so you know and I have ways that I try to cultivate that in my employees so we do a lot of negotiations and one of my employees in particular handles that the bulk of them and when she comes into my office and says, what's the right number? I say, well, what does your gut tell you? And nine times out of 10, it'll be the same number that was in my head. But she needs to practice it and she needs the positive reinforcement. And, and that's what we get to do that in life where we get to trust our gut and see what happens. You know, we don't have to do that with huge decisions initially if we're not super comfortable. Although I do with all decisions now. Yeah, I, I find it the most powerful. I so- love that. So how do you foster a matriarchal culture and help your employees use these skills? I don't think there's a one size fits all. And I think the example I just used around intuition is a great one. It's like, that's a practical one, which is where are the moments throughout the day where I can encourage my employees to use their gut instinct to make a decision instead of me making the decision, because I'm ultimately going to use my gut instinct. (laughs) So let's do an experiment and the minute to minute of where, what's the, what is their gut? How do they think that they should handle this? And then I'm there. We can correct it if it, if it feels like it's off kilter, but honestly, more times than not, it's not. So some of that's just creating space for it and creating language around it and, and encouraging it versus, you know, otherwise it's easy. If people are just in this like go, go, go mode all the time, it's harder to even hear your gut and hear your intuition. So part of it's creating space for that, literally. But I mean, a lot of it's just about setting examples. And I'm far from perfect. You know, I mean, I'm definitely I am emotional. And I don't think that comes out in a negative way very often, but occasionally it does. And sometimes it has both a good and a negative effect. And that's what I see differently now. So for example, I had a client we were on a client call. This is probably three, two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago. And the client was implying that my team was lying. 
And mama bear went a little ballistic on the call because I couldn't believe it. I was so shocked. And I, I mean, it's not like, I'm not like a yeller. I'm just, but I do get, everyone knows how I feel about things. So I, I said, honestly, I can't, this, just the fact that you just said that makes me feel that this is not a workable relationship. Like no one talks to my team that way. Integrity is so important to me. That's such a core sort of tenet of the agency in a million years. I can't imagine a scenario where a client would be sitting here implying that my team's being dishonest. And I was very forthright about it. I was like, I just don't think it's a fit. So we, of course we ended the relationship and that was that, but, and I'm sure she was shocked, frankly, because it was just, it was so visceral and it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't expecting that. I hadn't, it's not like it had occurred to me before this call that I was going to have this moment. I couldn't have predicted it. So I cooled down after that because I was not happy. I couldn't believe, I was just furious of the circumstances. I just, it made me so angry. And I walked away from that seeing that, yeah, you know what, maybe I could have handled it with a little more grace or I could have pulled a, you know what, I think we all have a lot to think about. Maybe we could just step away right now and come back together. And then I could have had a sidebar conversation with her when I was feeling less reactive, same outcome. But I think with the benefit of the fact that I got emotional in that moment was that my team saw it and they knew they were protected and they knew that I was not going to let anything happen like that and that I wouldn't let them be treated like that. So prior, I probably just would have spent a lot of time beating myself up over that and being like, what is wrong with me? I can't control myself. But now I'm like, you know what? It was a good loss of control and there were positive parts that came from it and it was a human moment and that's cool. <laughs> How did it feel when you were doing your TED Talk? How did it feel to have that platform? Especially when we think about the power of what you were talking about and how so many women in the world don't have a platform and a voice. Uh, you know, first of all, I have to admit, I took it for granted to some degree. I, not that I, I, I prepared like a crazy person. I was so nervous. The preparation was unlike anything. I just, so that TED Talk was years before the book came out. So a lot of the thinking was very rudimentary and preliminary. And I think I didn't have full command of the material at that time because I couldn't have because it wasn't developed. So I think I was nervous and winging it to a degree. I had a point of view and I had something to say and it did lay the foundation and groundwork for what ended up coming. But yeah, I don't, I don't have regrets about it, but I look at that and cringe, of course, because I feel like I could have done better. <laughs> but I thought, you, I thought you did really well and I really oh, like the three you. points that you made. So, and I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not your mom, but I just want to say, I thought your thank pacing you. was really good. Like I was really impressed that you slowed down. You know, that's like the speech 101 is like, slow down don't go too fast mm. so I was I, just from that I, I was very impressed that you handled it so well so I thought you did thank great. you <laughs> I appreciate that well it's so funny because everybody it was extremely hot room so everybody's fanning themselves and sweating and melting in the <laughs> audience and like it wasn't the most like glorious audience moment where you could get good feedback and kind of see how it was going so that was that was an added bonus challenge but but I really appreciate that I think it was you know, it was a growth experience as exactly. they all are. I know. Why are we so hard on ourselves? It's fine. Yeah. I think it's, it's okay. You know, it's like, I would rather watch that and go, here are ways I can get better versus feeling like, oh, nail that. You know, that's just so not me. I can't imagine. I mean, there are times I walk away from things. I'm like, that went as well as it possibly could have gone. Great. But, you know, when something lives online and you have to watch it more than once, you <laughs> will always pick it apart, I think. Of course. Yeah, I guess it's normal. So I know Elise Lunin follows you, and I'm just wondering how that came to be. Did you discuss your book with her, or are you aware that she follows you? <laughs> and oh. do you know her? Yeah, I love Elise. I run a PR agency, even though sometimes I have, find that strange because I'm really a marketer slash brand builder, but PR is, I think, a rebrand of what we used to call marketing. And it's such an effective brand building tool now. And it's super exciting to be in this space. And so early on, someone introduced me to Elise, and this was the very beginning of Goop. So it was a super fun time to meet her. And she's just a total rock star. And we work together a lot, especially over the years that she's been at Goop. And I know she's off 
continuing to do incredible things now. So, but yeah, she's, she's fantastic, super smart. And she's really one of the reasons that Goop is what it is. Wow. You're very fortunate. So listening to podcasts, like the Goop podcast with Elise really got me through the pandemic, just listening to them. And it having this podcast also for me got me through because what I was really missing was connection and spontaneity. And so I've loved doing this. And I wanted to know what got you through the pandemic and was it Clubhouse? And is that still your obsession? (sighs) Okay, so what got me through the pandemic was a number of things that allowed me to still feel connected to other people and even connected to myself. So one of those things was actually with Katie Chin, we created this game night, Katie's game night. Right, right, right. Which was every Sunday. Yeah, she told so, me about that. I said yeah. that you you all have to write a book about that because it's so great. That, that community, that, it just I just thought that was so beautiful. It's epic, and it's a great example of something you, that you look forward to every Sunday, and you meet these amazing women, and there's some fun, and I'm super competitive, so <laughs> I, I was very into the game part. But that was great. But the, but the other there are so many examples. I the minute the pandemic started, I. My trainer, his wife was pregnant. And so immediately I'm like, what are we going to do for junior? And so I gathered this group of people together to do these Zoom workouts. First, we tried it on FaceTime. But I mean, it's so funny because it's before we were using Zoom 24-7. So we started these Zoom workouts every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 8 a.m. And my best friend in New York participates, a few of my good friends here in LA. And it's so, and there have been different people come in and out throughout the pandemic, but we are still going strong and I love it. It's kept us all sane and in great shape. So that was really key. And then probably at the top of the list, I would say, has been dance and I started dancing three years ago I probably I danced when I was a child like small child and have not danced since but then became totally obsessed with it starting three years ago and it is such a huge source of joy for me and I'm sure it's great exercise etc but allows me just to get out of my head and to express things and to be creative and to laugh at myself. And my teacher Kiari comes to my house twice a week and we have the most epic lessons. And then he does a bunch of teaching on zoom actually, in case you're interested in joining. I'm so happy you're bringing up dancing. So could I hop on a zoom? Yes. Class with him, please. So his oh website, God. you must. His website is Kiari K I A R I L K dot com, and so you can register for his classes there. And yeah, it's the best. It's the best game changer. Amazing. I always like to end on a little bit of dessert, which. With you, I want to talk about travel because I can tell you're someone that just loves travel Mm, so much. I do. Can you share what your life is like in Venice? It's one of my favorite places. I took myself to Venice by myself, I think, two years ago. And then a friend met up with me and we went to downtown LA and I just had the absolute best time walking around and going to Rose Cafe and all these great places. I've always, I love Venice so can you share what your life is like there and, and what you, maybe your favorite spots are? Sure. I love Venice. And when I moved back from New York, I wanted to be somewhere that felt communal where you could walk places and neighborhoody. And lots of LA can be pretty isolating because people are in their cars all day and they live in their houses and they don't know their neighbors. And, and Venice is different. You definitely feel like you're part of something, part of a community. So in terms of favorite places, I mean, the beach is at the top of the list. I mean, and the, to be able to just go sit on the beach, the beach in Marina del Rey in the Alphabet Streets, which is right by Venice, is definitely the prettiest place to go. It's a little more chill and it's gorgeous and just such an incredible gift to have that so close to my house and to be able to bike there and really take advantage of it whenever and wherever I want. I run to the beach all the time. I walk the dog to the beach. I definitely feel like the beach is number one. And then old favorites like Jelena, which has been around forever. Yeah. Delicious restaurant. Yeah. The tasting kitchen is definitely my favorite in terms of just feeling like they take such good care of me. The food is great. And, and it's really feels like home to me because I've been going there for so long and know the people that work there, which I love. There's so many things popping up now 
now that are are fun. There's a new restaurant that opened up called Ospi, O-S-P-I, that opened during the pandemic in the fall, actually, I think September of last year. And I cannot imagine a worse time for a restaurant to open. But I became a regular from the minute I went there because I loved it so much. The food is so delicious. And I was so excited to be able to support a new restaurant at a time when they needed it most. So now I go there all the time. And I could go on and on and on and on about all the places I love in Venice. So that's a separate episode. What about where do you do your yoga and meditation and sound meditation? Where are you into in terms of all of that fun stuff? You know, that's an interesting one because I used to take yoga in a few different places and I haven't actually done any yoga in a studio since the pandemic began. I've done some outdoor yoga in various places, but not here in Venice and not even in LA actually. And I think dance kind of took over a lot of the, the yoga stuff for better or worse. Now I just, there's only so many hours in the day between the junior workouts and the yoga and the beach runs and the dancing. It's just too much. So I have to get back on the yoga schedule. There's a place called Moto Yoga right around the corner that is a hot yoga place. And that's great. And it's super easy. And the classes are excellent. And I'm just not totally ready for being in super sweaty anything with a bunch of people right now, but I will be. What was the most beautiful place that you've ever seen on your travels? What what about it was so beautiful? The first thing that popped to mind, and honestly, this is a very long list of things. So I don't really know. Like I, the, I, I can't say this is more beautiful than the rest, but was these, well, I don't know. This is hard to say. The rice fields in Bali, because I think when I saw that for the first time, it was so foreign and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I had never been anywhere that felt so different from home. And there's something so powerful about that to remind us of how small we are in the world and how small our life is in the context of the universe. And that's that's actually such a positive thing. So I it made me realize how much I love being in these kind of otherworldly moments. But I've, I've been fortunate. I've seen incredible things in my travels. So I, that's just, again, a whole podcast. Amazing. I could talk LA, New York City all day long. So. <laughs> I know. Me too. Me too. Really? What was it like to live in New York City and have an expense account and live pre-pandemic? What do you oh, miss about it? About New York? Yeah. I mean, I love New York. It still feels in some ways like a second home to me. And I'm glad I lived there right out of college, even though I was there for 12 years. So it was a serious New York experience. I am glad I did it when I was unformed or less formed because I could roll with it. And it requires a lot of rolling with it, life there, because there's no way, especially out of college, that I could have afforded any sort of lifestyle. But I, and, and the expense account, by the way, didn't cover the rest of my life as much as that would have been awesome. It did help <laughs> in certain respects. But yeah, feeling like I was experiencing like life and humanity and you're constantly surrounded by people and just, it's all so energy and connected in a way that's really different from anywhere else that I've lived. Certainly I've traveled places that feel like that. But but New York is one of a kind. I mean, I really do think like it's going through obviously another rough patch as it did after 9-11. I think the pandem- post-pandemic, a lot of people left town and feel like New York's going to kind of needed a facelift. And it will. It will go through a rebirth as it always does. And it will come back bigger and better and stronger than ever. It's just the most resilient city and is the most it has it I think in terms of cities in the United States that exemplify this kind of concept of America being the melting pot New York is at the top of the list it's like you are surrounded by all walks of life in the best sort of way and there are people from all around the world and you're not looking at people that look like you all the time and that's a great thing and your neighbors have a completely different background and lifestyle and the rest of it from you and you're all squashed together in one building and it's the coolest and you just feel like this is real life you know and I, I guess because I again grew up in LA in a certain neighborhood and certain private school and the rest of it, I was so sheltered. And New York just opened my eyes to everything. Wow, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous and you're so inspiring. And I really enjoyed chatting with you. And is there anything else that you want to tell listeners about? Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's been so much fun.
fun chatting with you and you really are a fantastic host. So I, I hope that the podcast continues to thrive even once real life comes back. <laughs> but it's really true. I have a lot of these conversations and this is a really super fun one. Thank um, you. And very thoughtful, which I really appreciate. No, I mean, I just, I obviously encourage anyone and everyone to read the feminine revolution and to share feedback with me because I love getting feedback and having those conversations. And if anyone wants to find me, I'm generally Amy K. Stanton everywhere you look. So Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. It means a lot coming from you because I know you have so much experience. So thank you very much for saying that. And yeah, I encourage everyone to read the book and I'm curious how men react to it have you had any moments with men where they say they had kind of an epiphany or kind of a new awareness yeah all of to have maybe how they were perceiving women because I know that in my own marriage I have moments where I think to myself I need to write a book to explain to men <laughs> why women have like why we react a certain way because his perception is so different from where I'm coming from. <laughs> I love it. Um, yes. I mean, one guy in particular shared the fact that it totally changed the way that he runs his company because he has more of an awareness of how the women are perceiving things and what their experiences and why they might be operating a certain way. And so I thought that was pretty cool because I would love to be able to make an impact on work culture. And then other men have just said, I wish you would write the same book for men because we all need to be encouraged to express these parts of ourselves. And the funny thing is part of the reason and it was targeted to women was because I felt like there were conversations happening, encouraging men to be emotional and show their sensitive side, but there were no conversations like that going on for women because there was a presumption that we were already doing that. So, but what it did show, of course, is that men want to be part of that conversation and want to be included and want to be, they want to be acknowledged as having some of the same challenges and they generally don't feel that they are. So, so yeah, I think it's very illuminating and important. I had to force myself to stop talking to Amy. <laughs> She's so interesting. I could have kept her on the phone all day. I love that she is on a mission to challenge the idea that femininity is weak. I think creating space for people's emotional authenticity right now is empowering for everyone. On the topic of transitions, I value her thoughts that A, we have to check our victim story and regain control and B, that it may actually be the peak of an interest that we have mastered and it's simply time to be a novice again and try something new and that might be the feeling that we're experiencing. That was something that really stuck out to me. I love that we ended up on the subject of Bali, which is the final location of Eat, Pray, Love, one of my favorite books and movies because my next guest is part of that story and I cannot wait to share that powerful conversation. If you enjoyed our chat, please hit follow. Please share this episode on social media and with your friends or send me a note. I love when you do that. Talk soon.